Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole is preparing to fight as 35 of his MPs have signed a letter calling for a leadership review that's going to take place this week. Is O'Toole on his way out? Dr. Peter Uni, the director of the Ontario Science Advisory Table, will join us to discuss the latest modeling numbers and what's next for Ontario. And what do we know about the far-right leaders that have infiltrated the truckers' convoy? And what are the possible outcomes of this protest? It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. As Jerry Smith reports, the conservative leader is preparing to fight to stay at his party's helm. Says he's not ready to go anywhere. Just O'Toole took to social media not long after word a group of his MPs submitted a letter to the party's caucus chair to hold a leadership review. One former caucus supporter said one-third of his MPs want him gone. O'Toole says there are two roads for the Tories to take. One is angry, negative, and extreme. The other is more inclusive and recognizing the need to change. It says a defiant O'Toole, it's time for a reckoning to settle this in caucus right here, right now, once and for all. The next meeting of the Conservative caucus is Wednesday. Jerry Smith, the Canadian Press. So what's going to be happening with Mr. O'Toole? Uh, nothing to see here seems to be the mantra that he's uh, spouting right now. I'm not so sure that everybody else in his caucus believe that. Uh, interesting piece in the National Post today uh, from uh, Tasha Kerridan. The uh, title is Aaron O'Toole's Leadership is Over. Uh, Tasha Karen, of course, is a principal navigator and uh, the author of the piece, and she joins us on the Bill Keller Show to talk about this. Uh, morning, Tasha. Good to have you with us today. Oh, thank you so much, Bill. Nice to be here. Uh, first line, I think, probably encapsulates an awful lot of uh, feel- sentiment that a lot of people have up here. Uh, Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole is a dead man walking. Uh, ex- explain to us what's happened over the last number of days to, to put him in such this precarious political position. Well, um, I'll get to the events of the weekend in a a moment, but the the most recent development is that 35 MPs signed a letter asking for a caucus leadership review. Now, they gave themselves the power to vote out their leader when Parliament returned after the election. It was something they didn't have previously. And at the time, O'Toole said he wasn't worried. He was confident that he would maintain his leadership. Um, things have not gone well since. There's been a lot of grumbling within caucus, a sense that he is not decisive enough. He prevaricates on things. And, um, you know, it's a question of can he hold the caucus together? Clearly, NAV is a problem. Um, these folks claim they have 63 out of 119 members who will vote him out, according to the Globe and Mail. Um, and so if that's the case, um, you know, I think he's right to throw down the gauntlet because what choice does he have really at this point? A decision has to be made because this is rather untenable as a situation. Talk to us about this situation. Let's assume that the vote does not go his way. And as you mentioned, the piece could happen as early as, as uh, well, Wednesday of this right. week. Uh, is he gone then or is, is this vote just to decide that we need to, to do something? I mean, he has to step down, doesn't he? Or, or is he this does. essentially he, removing he, him? Yes, he would. I mean, at that point, if they vote, um, if caucus votes to to oust him as leader, I think he wouldn't have the authority to to stay on. This is this is the issue. It's it's um, at a certain point, there's a tipping point, and after that point, um, there's just too much infighting and too much going on for the party to stay uh, functional, and he would have to go. Uh, I think we saw over the weekend people paving the way for that quite clearly. Um, you know, two of the the main protagonists in this drama. It's really quite Shakespearean, actually. Pierre Polliver or Polyer, I don't know how he even pronounces his name anymore. Uh, and Leslin Lewis, who were both working the crowd at the uh, protests in Ottawa. 
Uh, Mr. O'Toole also showed up at them, but he was not nearly as active on social media as the others were. They gave a lot of interviews. They were constantly tweeting. Um, you know, you didn't have to, to to really look far to think this this there's there's more motivation here than than just um, you know trying to look like the conservatives support this protest. And it, the whole thing is very controversial, of course, because um, parts of that protest were extremely offensive. And uh, if that's the image the Conservative Party then ends up being being tarred with, it's going to be a serious problem for them. Uh, to, to use your, your reference to Shakespeare, and uh, there's, there was no A2 Brute here because, I mean, these guys have been after O'Toole uh, very, very openly, uh, really, for the longest time, haven't they? Uh, yes, there have been uh, a lot of knives thrown. And, um, you know, it's, it's a wonder in some ways that this has gone on so long because it's, it's been an up and down situation. There was uh, last night, uh, Garnet Genwees came out on um, on social media as well, saying that this has been uh, happening since um, the vote on conversion therapy. Apparently, that's one of the, 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 the subplot lines here, that there was a fracture over that issue. And if that's the case, that's pretty serious, because um, that was presented as a united front when the party and the party made a big deal of it. Um, Melissa Lanceman, uh stood up and, you know, in the House and she sort of championed the uh, the party's position on it, which was that they were going to support the ban on conversion therapy. Uh, but allegedly, according to uh, re uh, reports that are out, there was a fracture in the party over that issue. If that's the case, they have a deeper problem than than just, you know, um, who leads them because that shows that the party is not united on social issues. We know there've been fractures in the past. Um, but as O'Toole rightly said, they got to make a choice. Um, what kind of party are they going to be going forward? Are they going to be inclusive? Are they going to reach out to uh, groups and new Canadians and people who have perhaps been felt alienated from the party in the last little while, or are they going to go down the path that we saw this weekend, which, you know, like I said, there were some well-meaning people in that crowd, but there were a lot of not well-meaning people in that crowd. And uh, you don't know who's going to dominate at the end of the day. Uh, as you say in the piece here, uh, he's, people have been sticking more knives in O'Toole. You, you wonder it's, uh, he hasn't bled out on the floor. Uh, and and he's, he has not been you know, oblivious to this. I mean, he knows what's going on. Uh, I guess the question a lot of people are asking these days, Tasha, is who's, who's running the party right now? Uh, you know, there's, there's always been like a party president. And of course, then you've got the party leader. There's a hierarchy there. Uh, and more often than not, and I guess, you know, the most recent example, of course, would be Stephen Harper. Uh, when the party leader says jump, you jump or you don't stay in caucus very long. Uh, right. There doesn't seem to be any order or any, 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 you know, hierarchy that, that's in the party right now. It's, uh, as you say, it seems to be everybody for themselves. Well, this is what happens when the knives come out and when people sense a leader is weak. And we saw that with Denise Batters, the senator that sen that yeah. uh, Mr. O'Toole basically excommunicated, um, you know, over her views. He said she she had to go. And yet the Senate caucus kept her. Right. So you saw MPs rallying to her side. You saw senators rallying to her side. That is a problem. That was a sign right there that there was a really serious problem that he didn't have the authority to to put his foot down over things. And so there's been moments like that, too, um, you know, even even after the election, there were calls for him to step down and he he sort of squelched them, but they kept popping up. So, you know, I mean, it, who's running the party? I mean, there's a national council of the party, this president, as you put it. Um, there are various, you know, bodies within the party uh, that make decisions on things from leadership rules, whether to be a leadership, they'd have to have a, a count committee to, to, to look at that. But in terms of running the party, this is the issue is that if things start to split apart like this and people start running off and, you know, having covert or open semi-open leadership campaigns, 
then you've got to get a, you've got to get a handle on that. The only way to do it is have a leadership race, quite frankly. So the, so the dust then settles because otherwise it's just it's it's under under the radar and that's really destabilizing. There's two names here that you, that you mentioned in the piece that I, I want you to comment on for our listeners. Uh, one is uh, Benjamin Ditcher. Now, yeah, people may remember him. He's a, a rather r- extremist uh, to the right side of the, sp- of the spectrum, way over to the right side of the spectrum. Uh, former conservative candidate who spoke, I guess, uh, and, and suggested that uh, the country is actually uh, being overrun by political Islam, rotting away to our, our society like syphilis. And the other yeah. is Patrick King, uh, who's one of the organizers of this, uh, who uh, says that this uh, this whole thing is a conspiracy to depopulate the Anglo-Saxon race because we they are the ones with the strongest bloodlines and thinks that COVID is a man-made bioweapon that was put out here just to make people sick. Is that the future of the Conservative Party? Are these the people that that uh, the people are going to be listening to in that party? Uh, I hope not. Um, this is this is the poison chalice I referenced in my in my yeah. piece because over the weekend on Sunday they held a press conference. Um, the organizers and those are two of the individuals that have been leading and spokesperson and organizer for this event, and um, they said that it's time for. Aaron O'Toole to go, Dichter said, and that uh, either Leslie Lewis or Pierre Polyev would be acceptable. They said, you know, we're not partisan. They made that reference in their in their uh, introduction. They said, we're not partisan, but here's what we think. So, uh, you know, um, with an endorsement like that, with friends like that, uh, who needs enemies, right? I, I mean, I think mm-hmm. that most Canadians look at this and go, well, wait a minute, who is running this? To your point earlier, um, you know, I don't think that the Conservative Party is, is overrun with people like this. I think that the problem is the perception will be that they are. If you if you get extremists who do these kinds of endorsements and are out popping out of the woodwork and you saw some of the you know the imagery from the protest, uh, you had soldier of Odin jackets, you had uh, flags, you know, with swastikas on the Canadian flag, you had um, Confederate flags, uh, you had people, you know, expressing views of Trump banners, this kind of thing that the average Canadian does not welcome at all. This looks, you know, and, and there's hatred there and. What I what I said here, it, it, the really big thing that, that struck me was that no one called it out on the spot. There were, you know, yeah. afterwards, Mia Culpas and O'Toole said, oh, this was really bad what they did at the Cenotaph and to Terry Fox. But that, that was, you know, hours later. No, when you see someone with a flag like that, you tell them, put that away. Get out of here. That's not our message. There were a lot of people at this rally who were there for, for you know, really strong personal reasons. They lost their business. They lost their job. Their kids were out of school. But no one called this out and Pierre Polliver didn't call it out on the spot either. And neither did Leslie Lewis. And that's what they should have done because otherwise it looks like you are accepting their presence. And I mean, these voices and these opinions are not new. I mean, they've been out there and yeah. we oh, no, there were other names out there too. Well, hell, you know, Maxine Bernier actually split from the party and started his own party to, to espouse a lot of this stuff. Uh, but we never thought they were going to be the voice of the party. I mean, there was always a move, and I mean, even on Stephen Harper's days, uh, he knew they were out there, uh, and but he didn't want to play up to them in any way, shape, or form, and he didn't let them direct policy for the party uh, at any given time. Uh, Andrew Scheer had less success doing it, and uh, they've, they've just stampeded over Aaron O'Toole in a situation like this. Where are the conservatives? And I don't mean party members, though, Tasha, but I'm talking about small-c conservatives in this country where are they in this to, to speak up and say, you guys are, are, are you've co-opted our party. I mean, you've taken over. Not, not unlike, as you mentioned in the piece, uh, you know, the radical right did uh, to the Republican Party south of the border. And they st- they're still suffering from that. Yeah, well, I think they haven't taken, no one's taken over yet. Um, but that danger is, 
is there. It is is now in the ether. It is out there. I think a lot of people before the real debate in the Conservative Party was between social conservatives and um, more uh, you know socially liberal conservatives about issues such as conversion therapy and others. There was there was a fracture of the religious right, which is different than you know the uh, the alt right or the white supremacist right. Right. That is that is a whole other kettle of fish. And so that's what that's what we saw some of that at this at this protest. And there are people who say, oh, well, it was just a few flags. And oh, well, you know, it could have been plants and who knows. And but the point is, like I said, it wasn't sufficiently called out. And once you open the door and that gets in the average small C conservative, to your point, goes, whoa. So I think that they need to mobilize. If there's a leadership race, as I believe that I believe that uh, Mr. O'Toole will, will not stay on, um, and I believe that there will be a leadership race, then they have to make their voices heard, and they have to have someone who will stand up for them and say, "Hey, no, um, this is a party that is a power that can bring you know Canadians together. We are not looking to divide. Uh, we are not. We don't stand with hatred. We stand for what Canada is: a, a country that is inclusive, a country of opportunity." You know, you can believe in small government, but you don't need to believe in that stuff. So, yes, they need to find their champions in a race if it happens, when it happens, and they need to make their voices heard and prevent exactly what you're talking about from happening here. Yeah, I, I'm just waiting to hear from him. I mean, Brian Mulroney has spoken out in the past about the, the direction the party's taking, but I, I get sure. the sense a lot of people in, within the party are simply being dismissive and say, oh, that's the past generation. That, that's 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 right. yesterday's news, Brian Mulroney. Uh, although maybe they want to reconsider that opinion. So when you and I finish this conversation, uh, 10 seconds after you and I finish here, uh, Aaron O'Toole calls you and says, Tasha, what do I do here? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, my back's up against the line. And this is a hypothetical, of course. Uh, what would you say? Get get ready? Well, stick it out? Fight it out? What's, what's going to happen? I think he has to go down fighting. I, I, you know, will he go down or not? I can't 100% predict that. I think, though, that, you know, it looks like he would, from what from reports are, that he would go down. And I think at this point, it's very hard for him to maintain. Um, there's a race. He could run again. I don't know if that would really work out. But I think he has to call the vote. And he's said he's going to call the vote. And that that's going to decide going forward. And if he loses the vote, then obviously, you know, uh, the leadership race will be on. And the party will have to figure it, this out. And, you know, hopefully people will get in this race and espouse the kinds of points of view we've been talking about um, that I think would take the party forward and not backward. Um, but he has, that's his, that's his, he can't go back from this. And he threw down the gauntlet last night. So I say, go forward. And if you go down fighting, you go down fighting, but you have to fight and, um, and see what, you know, what happens. If he, if he really believes in these things, then he has to go down fighting if that's where it ends. Uh, well, I'll let you go then because I'm sure he's trying to get a hold of you now. Uh, he could use all the <laughs> advice he can get right these days. Uh, great piece in the post. I, I, I encourage our listeners to, to check it out and read the whole thing in its entirety. Some, uh, some great pros in there. Uh, stay safe, Tasha. We'll talk again soon. This is a, an unfolding story, as we say in our biz. And uh, certainly more of this story. down the road. You betcha. Take <laughs> Thanks care. Thanks so much, Bill. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Tasha Curran, of course, principal at Navigator and uh, the author in the piece in the National Post. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. New modeling is out now from the Ontario Science Table about what's going to be happening with COVID. And, well, there's some interpretation that's necessary here, too. I, just looking at some of the press releases and some of the stuff on social media already. Uh, and uh, uh, let's let's not jump to any conclusions here. Uh, to try to get some clarity on this, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Peter Uni. Dr. Uni, of course, is the director of the Ontario Science Table and a professor of medicine and epidemiology at the University of Toronto. Doctor, a pleasure to have you back on the program. Hope you're doing well these days. Yes, I'm actually doing okay. I hope you too. Good, Good morning. We're hanging in there. 
I'm just looking at some of the comments here. It's just a couple of minutes ago, of course, Doctor, that uh, this data was released. Uh, and there's a phrase here that I think a lot of folks have jumped on in here. It says, key indicators show that Omicron has peaked in Ontario. And some people have uh, concluded that that means that the worst is over and it's, it's just going to be easy riding down in here. I'm, I'm getting the sense <laughs> as I read the rest of the report, Doctor. Uh, it's not time to put the toolkit away just yet. Oh, no, you know, this is not just alpine downhill skiing, what we're talking about. (laughs) Um, Look, what we don't know right now is how many people have been infected since the beginning of December. That's very difficult to triangulate. Um, Based on wastewater data, it could be anywhere between roughly 1.5 to 4 million people who have been infected up to now since December 1st. And it depends highly on this number, whether this could just be a downhill slope, very unlikely, or whether we will see some rebound. So we will reach, you know, the the bottom of the valley, and then we will go uphill again a bit. And the the basis here is then just to figure out where will we peak again? You know, we don't want to peak higher with our hospital and ICU occupancy than what we currently have. And fingers crossed that it was already, you know, perhaps approaching 3 million people who were infected. You'll see that in the slide deck, you know, there's uh, one scenario that assumes 3 million people with recent infections would be much easier for everybody than if it's just perhaps 2 or 2.5 million infections. Let me ask you about that, because it, it's something I think a lot of people are concerned about. Uh, I, it, you can only do these projections based on the information that, that, that is available to you. And, and, and uh, we've all talked about the fact that there isn't as, as much testing going on as there probably should be. It's probably not Absolutely. as much testing going on as, as used to happen. How, how comfortable are you with that? Uh, when you look at the numbers that you have been able to attain here, uh, is, is, it's not complete data, that's for sure, as you just mentioned, but is it enough for you to do this? Are you comfortable with these numbers or are you afraid that there could be uh, a, a much more serious uh, scenario here that we just maybe are not aware of because we don't have all that data? No, I don't think that there's a much more serious scenario than what we show. But you see, what we show shows a lot of uncertainty. It's a wide yeah. range of where we could be uh, in, you know, mid-March 2022. And we just need to be aware of that. We need to very carefully monitor the situation. We can use wastewater for that and test positivity as early indicators. And then also see how a hospital and ICU occupancy behaves. You know, how far will they come down before they start to rise again? This will help us to understand where this is going. So the next few weeks are really important. And, you know, the only thing that I'm really not comfortable is to think about the next step of the reopening, that this happens in a fixed manner after three weeks. You know, that's the part where I would say, oh, let's not get ahead of ourselves. We simply don't know. We first need to look what's happening now. One of the criteria that you've always talked to us about is uh, is the impact, as you say, it's having on, on the hospital system itself. Uh, and the numbers I've seen on this, Doctor, are still very, very troubling about the capacity, first of all. Uh, as you mentioned in the report here, admissions are at the highest level across all age groups these days. Uh, that Absolutely. has been staffing in hospitals uh, is, is under a great deal of stress and duress now because of what's happening. Uh, I just saw a special on Global over the weekend about uh, a number of people that are still in ICUs, but they're not in a hospital setting. They've been transferred to other facilities simply to make a, you know space in some of the beds. Uh, th- we're not out of the woods by any stretch of the imagination, no. and, and especially when it comes to the impact this is having on our hospitals. 
No, absolutely. Look, it's uh, very important also to realize that Canada has historically never been really excellent if it comes to the number of hospital and ICU beds per population. No, and we have, for instance, you know, to get, to give you an, uh, an example, only half as many ICU beds per population as the US. Meaning, we just need to be more careful. We, we're not uh, among the rich kids, so we need to be street smart here. And street smart means we need to really ride out this wave in a controlled way so that our IC occupancy doesn't increase, at least not above of what we just had. And hopefully, you know, we will have a situation where we never will see more than 500 patients in ICU beds with COVID uh, in, the, in the near future during the next uh, eight weeks or so. That's the aim here. And we just need to tread very carefully. One of the other takeaways here that I just referenced here a second ago is uh, we talked about the admissions. Uh, the highest level across all age groups. Uh, there's still a perception out there in, in some circles anyway, uh, that this is a senior's disease, that they're the ones who are in the most precarious situation. Uh, there are, I'm still seeing comments that, you know, that kids aren't going to get this, that you've got statistics that showed quite differently uh, and how severe this can be. This is uh, this is still something that's reaching across just about every facet of, of our population, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And we also just need to be aware of, you know, the face of this has changed massively since we started in this pandemic in, uh, you know, February, March 2020. And of course, one of the reasons it's changed that much is vaccination. And what we now have is just, you know, one reliable uh, protective effect, and that's the vaccine. And if you don't have the vaccine, of course, if you're younger, you're less likely to end up in a hospital, but your risk is not zero. And if you have had, you know, two and now three doses, you really will have a risk which is next to zero, which for you makes it then much more closely to you know, an experience, you know, of, of the flu now. So it's the vaccines, basically, and our understanding of the disease and the management, etc., that changes things. And that that allows you know, places like Denmark to open more because they also have more people vaccinated than we do, especially with three doses. All of that comes back to, do we manage to reach all those uh, you know, pockets of people who still are not vaccinated? Reach out to them if they distrust the system. This will be tremendously important during the next few weeks and months. How do we get those numbers up? Again, when you hear things like, well, you know, we reached our peak, there are some folks, and I, I've already talked to some people over the weekend, I guess especially in light of what's going on in Ottawa the, the, these last couple of days, that say, well, why should I get vaccinated now? It seems as if the worst is over and I can just ride this out. Uh, and hmm. pretty soon, you know, this is going to be just something that we're going to look at in the rearview mirror. The no, data that you're presenting today, case. doctor, tells a different story, though. Oh, absolutely. Look, uh, one thing which I find pretty striking is just a look at the US where um, the pandemic really hasn't been under control, meaning all those who are unvaccinated, they were uh, had a high likelihood to be infected in the past. And it's relatively safe to assume that about 75% of the unvaccinated have been infected in the past. And guess what? If you now go to the CDC website and compare the rates of hospital admissions in uh, those who are vaccinated, and those who are not vaccinated, the differences between the two groups remain. It's not that, you know, if you have had an infection, for example, um, it protects you well enough or as well as, as a vaccination against an, a hospitalization. And here we have a lot of people who are not vaccinated still. We are very successful compared, you know, uh, with other countries and uh, other, other places, but we still need to be aware of that. 
that uh, right now the risk that you will get infected is very high. It's since this is so transmissible, you know, by the end of this spring, um, I can't tell you exactly, but 95 to 99% of uh, people who are not having enough immunity will have been exposed to the virus. That's very clear based on everything we know. Let's clear another issue up, if we could, about immunity, doctor, because uh, there are some who said, you know, I had it, uh, so I'm I'm not going to get it again. I'm fine. You know, I, I had it. I was sick for a couple of days. Thank God it wasn't very serious. But I build up enough antibodies right now that I don't need to be vaccinated. Is there any validity to that mindset? Yeah, it's interesting, especially if you haven't had a severe disease. It seems that Omicron is not really, you know, resulting in a massive boost of antibodies. The more severe the disease you had, the more it seems that your antibodies are boosted more. But in any case, again, um, if you have had, you know, two doses of a vaccine and on top of that you experienced Omicron, certainly you have some protection now for the next few months. Who knows for how long? It's too short-lived right now, the pandemic that I can tell you already. But it makes sense then to still perhaps six to eight weeks after your infection to get a third dose. If you only have had infections, your, your immunity is just really short-lived and you just have a disadvantage, even if you have had infections, over somebody who has had at least two doses. And three doses right now are just the standard, especially for everybody, you know, uh, uh, 40 plus, you know, for those age groups, the risk of ending up in hospital is simply too high. And if we just get a third dose, we further reduce the risk of hospitalization by roughly a factor of five. And the same for ICU admission and death. All of that really matters and right now matters even more because we want to ride out this wave without overwhelming, uh, our, again, our healthcare system. We're, of course, as of the Monday of this week, uh, starting with uh, what the Premier and, and the government are talking about, uh, about reintegration, about lessening some of the, the, the restrictions that have been put in place here. With guarded optimism, I guess, and, and as we mentioned, the Premier is going to make another announcement at 11 o'clock this morning that we're going to carry for our listeners. Uh, are you comfortable with the program that the, that the government's laying out here? I'm, I'm always uncomfortable when they say, you know, they say they put dates on this and say, well, by March yeah. something or other, we're going to do this because you don't know what the data is going to look like. But that aside, uh, are, you, are we going too fast? Are we are we being cautiously optimistic here? Are you Are you comfortable with what the Premier has laid out so far? I'm comfortable with what we're doing right now, provided that we're aware of that now we need to watch carefully and might need to wait longer than just three weeks for the next step. Right now is really crucial since this is such a big step and since we don't know yet how many people actually have experienced infection since December 1st, um, how this all will behave and where, you know, on the trajectories of this wide range of different uh, options in our models, where we will be. And we first need to find out. Therefore, I would just like to ask everybody not to expect, okay, three weeks from now, we just do the next step. This is far from clear. And, you know, as time goes by, two weeks from now, we probably will, uh, you know, be a bit smarter. But again, Remember, if we do something now, we won't see anything related to that in our hospital and ICU numbers yet in three weeks from now. This will take longer. So what we need to look at is really test positivity and wastewater. The impact, the negative impact could actually be, you know, a, a quite a bit later than, uh, than uh, three weeks from now. And we just need to be aware of that. We don't want to have a next mountain peak, which is higher than the current one, if it comes to ICU and hospital occupancy. 
Yeah, the, we look at other jurisdictions. Uh, well, the UK comes to mind uh, as, as one of the first, I guess, that are basically saying, okay, you know, everything goes now. You know, everything's open. Uh, there are no capacity limits and things of this nature. Uh, how do we resist our, the, the inclination to do that sort of thing? I, I guess we should mention the caveat that, of course, the UK tried to do this a few months ago. And things got so bad that they just had to, to clamp down again. So, I mean, they were premature in that situation. I don't know. I hope it doesn't happen to them again. But there's a lot of political pressure, as you've heard, Doctor, yeah. from uh, all circles right now to say, look, enough is enough. We're frustrated for this. Let's, as, as you know, Dr. Moore said a couple of days ago, we have to learn to live with this. I'm not so sure what that phrase means and, and how that, that's going to impact what we're supposed to be doing going forward. Yeah, look... The UK didn't do a particularly good job in uh, protecting their vulnerable. And when you look at their death rates, you know, they were very high. And they also uh, struggled again and again with uh, with uh, hospital and ICU occupancy. What they have now, of course, is a lot more of uh, immunity. You know, we our challenge right now is that those who remained unvaccinated, they were protected relatively well. Um, through the pandemic measures we had, meaning we just now first need to ride out this wave. And this means that uh, those people who are not having any immunity will need to obtain some immunity, unfortunately, through infection without us getting overwhelmed. And therefore, if we just would let it rip right now, it could backfire unless we are in the unlikely situation that already roughly 5 million people have been infected since December 1st. I do not believe that this is true. Then we could basically just say, okay, we let it go and nothing will happen anymore. We have enough short-term immunity. I don't think that this is the case. It's probably lower. Therefore, we need to really just carefully look at what we're doing and not get ahead of ourselves. You know, one more time, we need to pass the marshmallow test. But when we hear people, politicians and, and some of your colleagues uh, say we have to just learn to live with this now, uh, I think a lot of people misinterpret that just to mean, okay, it is what it is. Let's just continue on with our lives. And, and if you get it, you get it. I, I don't think that's the attitude that, that, that you're suggesting here, but I think some people may be moving to, toward that right now. Uh, we need, I think, a, a clearer definition of what le learning to live with it actually means, yeah. what that entails. It, I don't, I don't to... think it means no restrictions, does it, Doctor? No, no. It, it, it basically just means that we uh, need to be aware of that thanks to vaccines, we are more and more in a situation where at least those who are vaccinated will have uh, you know, a reasonable prospect, even if they get infected. That's great news. But what we now just need to be aware of that we have a continued challenge, you know, with uh, those people who are not vaccinated. And we just hope that uh, once we're through this wave, since everybody or nearly everybody has been exposed to the virus, that things are changing and it will move us closer to endemicity. But this doesn't mean that we don't see ripples or small waves or whatever in the, in the future. Remember, this virus is uh, right now so infectious and infects so many people, there will be new mutations coming. The point is, what will change is that more and more of us have had some immunity and this will be tremendously helpful. But, you know, just say, okay, we just can let go of everything right now. This would not be a prudent thing to do, especially again, now this starts to be a real issue when we think about, you know, our ranking in OECD's, uh, you know, list of uh, hospital beds per population, ICU beds per population. 
we basically don't have that much capacity that we can be careless here. That's very simple. But this doesn't mean that we have to go back somewhere. It's just that we need to take it slow and transition ourselves into a new mode. Um, this means in the future, things can look uh, you know, considerably better, but we'll need to figure out how this all plays out and how this will go with a new variants. What will be the new variant? You know, another misconception is the one, oh, the next variant coming will be milder again. This is not true. This is a complete misinterpretation of, uh, of uh, evolutionary biology. That's not how it works. It could be worse, the next variant, but what is better is all of us having more immunity. Always good to have you on the program, Doctor, and to, and to put some clarity to this. Uh, you know, with, as we mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, uh, there's there's still work to be done here, and we don't want to backslide it once again. We'll look with great interest to see how the Premier is going to react to, to this data when he talk, talks later on today. As always, thank you for your time, Doctor. Uh, stay well, and we'll talk again soon down the road. Sounds good. Take care, Take too. Care. Bye. Bye-bye. Dr. Peter Uni, the Director of the Ontario Science Table. And, of course, Professor of Medicine and Epidemiology at the U of T. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A lot has been said and there's been a lot of speculation about exactly who is up in Ottawa these days for the protest. Uh, as we know, this started out as a, a protest, or so we were told anyway, by truckers uh, who had problems with the, the vaccination mandate, of course, for truckers that wanted to go across the border. That's, that's how this started. Uh, but it's become fairly obvious to to most observers uh, that this whole thing has been co-opted by a number of other groups and a number of other people that have jumped into this. And and I would suggest that there's obviously some of them have actually taken over the whole process. Not to suggest there aren't people up there that are legitimately concerned about government policy. I get that. But uh, we have to wonder about who else is there and what their motivations might be and what their agenda might be. Uh, I know yesterday when uh, he did his uh, media conference, the prime minister talked about this and uh, talked about the truckers themselves. There is no place in our country for threats, violence, or hatred. So to those responsible for this behavior, it needs to stop. To anyone who joined the convoy but is rightly uncomfortable with the symbols of hatred and division on display, join with your fellow Canadians. Be courageous and speak out. Do not stand for or with intolerance and hate. So that was the Prime Minister yesterday. Uh, who are these people, quite frankly? Are they just all disgruntled truckers? Is there something else going on here? Or is, is there a plan here? I want to bring uh, Dr. David Hoffman into the conversation. Uh, Dr. Hoffman is an Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of New Brunswick and a Senior Research Affiliate with the Canadian Network for Research on Terrorism, Security, and Society. Uh, Professor, thank you so much for the time. I'm glad you could join us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's it's great to be here and uh, talk about this important issue. Well, I, I'm concerned about this as I watch this unfold. And as I mentioned a, a couple of seconds ago, uh, I think it became fairly obvious to most of us that uh, no matter what the intentions of the truckers were who started this thing uh, with their trek across the country, uh, it didn't take long for this thing to get co-opted. Uh, there are different voices, and clearly, uh, judging from some of their actions and some of their statements, uh, a much different agenda from what they started out with. Mm -hmm. uh, you you hit the uh, the nail right on. Um, it's been co-opted, and it's it's not the first time this has happened. We saw this uh, similar sort of dynamic happen with the Yellow Vest movement what, two to three years ago. Um, that uh, essentially far right voices uh, glommed onto. 
uh, glommed on to the, the Yellow Vest movement and, and started twisting it and making it about identity politics and anti-immigration. So this is a, a standard ta- tactic we've seen the far right use in Canada and elsewhere, uh, where they um, they will go with and, and uh, merge themselves with, with other prominent anti-authority, anti-government uh, movements, and uh, a small but, but uh, vocal portion of that movement will uh, twist the message, as you said, and will um, uh, use it as a pulpit to spread their ideas, to recruit, uh, and to rabble rouse. And that's what we saw here with the, the trucker convoy. What's what's the first order of business for somebody who's got that agenda and to do that? They, they need, I guess, basically to find a group of people that are disgruntled. And and you you talked about the yellow vesters. Well, I mean, Donald Trump comes to mind too. Uh, you know, when he was running for president the first time, uh, you know, he he made immigration a key issue. You know what? I don't know what's going on with those Muslims. And all of a sudden, there's a Muslim ban. Uh, he talked about Latinos across the border, and you know, the crime rate was all because of the Latinos. Uh, yep. He. He made, but people gravitated to that. I guess because they wanted to believe that. It's well, uh, Donald Trump. Maybe I'm not answer your question, and, and if I'm not, please uh, direct me back to it. But sure. uh, that type of rhetoric, and and when uh, with the leader of the the ostensible leader of the free world, um, uh, normalizing that type of of uh, hate speech and that type of mentality, which obviously resonated with with a portion of Americans and and Canadians, um, it has helped create a, a permissive environment for this type uh, of, of uh, symbolism and this type of speech, which is uh, essentially why uh, you can't say it's a direct correlation with, with Trumpism and, and, and uh, all that rhetoric, but it's a big part of why these individuals feel comfortable enough and safe enough to uh, be vocal about it, to stand up in front of a crowd in Ottawa and say they're a white supremacist, to, to cheering crowds, to, to face uh, uh, national, uh, Canadian national monuments. I mean, uh, this is this is a much more insidious and, and um, uh, nebulous uh, um, issue we're dealing with here, and, and, and it's the lessening and, and uh, of moral boundaries and the uh, increased permissiveness of, of this type of, of uh, rhetoric. And, and I think uh, Prime Minister Trudeau got it. I mean, I couldn't have said it better myself. That was that is the the perfect messaging in my mind. No, you did address it very well, and I think what you've done is laid the foundation here, because one of the questions that I have as I watch these groups, and and especially over this past weekend, of course, is when did they become emboldened? I mean, we've always known that there were neo-Nazis. I mean, you know, there's a Nazi party in the United States. I mean, but they usually, as you said, they kept their heads down. They, you know, yeah. there was that own little clique, but they're emboldened now. They have no problem. Uh, you know, standing up on a podium and declaring their their hatred of of anything but the Aryan race and and on and on and it goes like this. This is something that's relatively new to us to actually think. You know, where do they they get the the, the brass whatever to to be able to stand up there and say, yeah, this is what I am. So what? You've asked a million dollar question, and in all honesty, I think I think we're still too close to the issue to to get a, a definitive answer. And it's going to be uh, years before we can look back and with some historical uh, distance to be able to to pinpoint it. But uh, I suspect it's, I mean, I, I'm saying this with, with an asterisk and, and a grain of salt because, again, this is, this is my hunch more than, than uh, anything grounded in, in, in good, rigorous social science. But uh, I, I suspect it's been a slow creep for decades of, of uh, uh, um, certain narratives, particularly in, um, from uh, the American context that have just, uh, uh, with the, the polemic and divisive 
um, rhetoric that's there with with the the the, uh, the, the two party system that, that's just polarizing the country there, it's created a hotbed for uh, this type of far right extremism. And what uh, what scholars of, of far right extremism know is, is and we've 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 studied this at, at great uh, length, is that um, the United States is the greatest exporter of far right extremism. We share we share uh, the largest uh, unguarded land border with them. We live in a world of of, of vast and easy communication. Sorry, my dogs are are getting okay. you know it's COVID. My dogs are deciding <laughs> to yell at me. Um, and uh, we we live in a world where, where these ideas can can spread. And uh, essentially, it's 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 made its way up here in Canada. I think you and I have had the conversation before, where where I mentioned in 2016. Prior to 2016, we we Canada has not had a single recorded case of a of a um, american style paramilitary militia group and and post 2016 we have at least one in every single province um it, it's it's uh i do want to uh, lump all the blame on the american context and you know everything's the united states fault but we uh it, it's something and again I, I we can't say with any sort of certainty that there's something in it that's been building for i would say decades and and it's just coming to a head right now you're you're absolutely right. I mean, and you're right. I'm not going to blame everything on the states, but, but we've we've got our own problems here. But it just seems oh, as absolutely. if as if the, it's it's blossomed right now. I mean, you know, I, when I was a younger man in this business, uh, I remember watching the, the the likes of of George Wallace, the governor, of course, uh, and, and David Duke from the Ku Klux Klan, and and yeah. we knew who they were. We certainly knew what they stood for. But I think there was always a bit of a, a, a reassurance there, though, professor, to say, well, you know what? Those thank God, those are people are never going to get elected. Uh, yeah. yeah, they can. And yeah, they have been elected now. And, and those that espouse those same sorts of things are, are starting to gain uh, public support, but they're also starting to gain some political support. I mean, you can argue that, that uh, I, I'm playing historian a little bit, you can argue that uh, the memories of, of World War II and the atrocities that happened then and, and the, the anti-fascist backlash uh, of the media generation afterwards is, is fading to a certain degree, right? And it's become mythologized and People who who have seen that that type of atrocity firsthand um, are are dying out. So I mean, in, in terms of a collective memory uh, and and a fear of fascism, I mean that's dying out. Part of it is is I suspect just has to do with good old normal human frailty and, and fear, um, particularly in in the the pandemic with this trucker convoy. I mean, I, I don't support anti-vaxxers at all. I, I think I think their message is dangerous, but. Uh, I understand where their mentality is coming from. The, these are people who are scared, um, and in, in a chaotic and unpredictable world where where the world is is not the same as it was two years ago. Who are looking for answers, and whereas the vast majority of, of socially responsible Canadians will engage in the the with the right health practices and 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 sacrifice personal uh, personal comforts for uh, public health. These are individuals who find comfort and and uh, a, a bit of control in their lives by embracing anti-vax views. And, and you could argue it's the same with, with far-right extremism. So this is why you get, get the, the trucker convoy merging, and, and this is why they're, they're um, uh, compatible with anti-vax uh, mentality. Not all, not all right-wingers are anti-vax, and not all anti-vaxxers are right-wingers, but they both have anti-authority points of view. They're both challenging the status quo. They're both uh, reviled by, by the vast majority of Canadians. Uh, and they have common ground, even if you know, even if there isn't a hundred percent congruity between their beliefs. But this this is how you can end up having the trucker convoy co-opted 
by individuals who, who have somewhat but slightly different beliefs. Is in, in a situation like that, as I say, you have to wonder, you know, where the seed initially results. And you're absolutely right. I mean, I I saw people in the news over the weekend that said, you know, I'm I'm triple vaxxed, but I'm still here. Uh, is the common enemy government in in a situation like that? Because that's the ultimate authority figure in in our society, isn't it? Yeah, uh, actually, uh, it's it's this is a hypothesis I'm working with more and more, and uh, it seems to be um, uh, less about the the, the uh, message for, for for far writers or or um, people who who well maybe not with with white supremacists for a certain subset of the far right, and more about an anti-authority stance. Uh, I'll give you an example of. Uh, an individual I've been talking with for the past five to six years, um, who uh, for research purposes, and they started off as as a, a, a leftist, uh, a soft, uh, sovereign citizen. Uh, when Trump got elected, they switched to uh, hardcore Trumpism. When Trump got uh, um, got out of office, he uh, joined QAnon, and then uh, now he's he's uh, hardcore into anti-vax. And it, it's it's this kind of puzzling shift from. Issue to issue, some of them are completely incompatible with one another. Um, I, I find puzzling, and, and the common thread is exactly what you said: it's anti-authoritarianism and it's, it's anti-government, uh, and it's more about you know raging against the, uh, the system and raging against those in charge than uh, an actual substantive desire to you know change the world. It, I, I suspect it's part of a quest for meaning too. These individuals want to be something, uh, part of something greater than themselves. What emboldens them, though, to take? The, the sorts of actions to the extent that they do. I mean, uh, you know, uh, listen, I, I mentioned in my morning commentary earlier this morning, Professor, I said, you know, hating the prime minister is, is that's a sport in this country. I mean, it's been going mm-hmm. on since Confederation. It doesn't matter who the prime minister is. So that's not new. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and being against government policy is not new. Uh, but, you know, we've had some some rather acerbic editorial cartoons. We've had people deliver petitions. Uh, we've had rallies before. Uh, but we haven't seen the kind of behaviors that we've seen here and in some of these other behaviors. I mean, for instance, remember in the last fall in the election, they're throwing rocks at the prime minister at a, at a public appearance, uh, you know, defecating on the National War Memorial up in Ottawa, uh, you know, urinating on that, you know, the, the sorts of things that went on there, the slogans that are on some of these signs, uh, yelling and screaming at people, you know, t- demanding food from a, a food bank. This is, it's, it's egregious behavior, uh, but they consider it the norm, I think. It's uh, it's also a difficult question, and and the, the true answer I, I can't give you an editorialized answer and, and do it justice. Uh, I mean, there's there's dozens of different factors at play here. Uh, I mean, the one that comes to mind is uh, again these are it, it's it's almost like animalistic behavior. Uh, we are animals. We are social animals. We're highly advanced animals. But these are uh, individuals who are scared. As I mentioned before, they are they are looking for something, and and one of the natural reactions of a scared animal is to lash out. Uh, safe. I mean, you could lash out interpersonally and engage in acts of violence, and, and heaven forbid that should happen. Another is to to lash out, as you mentioned, uh, easy target governments, you know, uh, uh, so on and so forth. However, the the million dollar question again is, you know, okay, so these individuals are are lashing out. Well, they're facing the same sort of pressures as the rest of uh, Canadians. They they we're all living through the pandemic. We're all upset. We're all and so on and so forth. What is it about these, you know, several hundred or seven uh, several thousand people that caused them to lash out? As opposed to to all Canadians, it, it's the same sort of we all come from the same sort of you know social pot, let's say. Um, and uh, there there isn't really a good answer in social science. There's, it's it's a question we've been looking at for decades. 
it's it's uh, and I know that's kind of a, a cop out answer, but uh, there, there's nothing conclusive yet. We we know there are people who are willing to uh, put personal uh, personal gain and, and their personal lives at risk, and this is what these people are doing. They're they're engaged in high risk activism. They, they're they're um, the, especially in an age where everyone has a camera in their pocket. They're they're putting their livelihood and and their reputations at risk, or and they're they're willing to do that, and it's in the same way someone's willing to to engage in in you know high risk activism with environmentalism and and Greenpeace mm-hmm. and and PETA and these these movements where where uh, you know single cause movements where these individuals will do everything and anything to see the goal uh, come through. But it's it's uh, yeah, I'm I'm kind of disyammering on at this point, but it's it's no, complicated. No, it's, it, well, it is, but you know you you wonder you know, we talked about motivation. Do they really and truly think that the acts of, for instance, civil disobedience and things of this nature are, are, are going to make them attain their goal? Is, is a government's going to cower? I mean, look, at, I've been working from home for the last, well, over two years now. I, I'm, I'm tired of this stuff, too. Mm-hmm. I'm tired of the restrictions. I'm tired of the fact that I, I feel, you know, hesitant to go to a movie or to go into a bookstore or something like this. I think we're all tired of this thing, but not all of us feel motivated to go up to the nation's capital and hang out there and, and, and cause the sorts of problems that are being caused right now, especially, you know, with, with, I'm, I'm sure that, you know, some people really and truly think the government's going to acquiesce. That, that never happens that way. Yeah. Or maybe that's not even their motivation. Maybe their motivation is just to, as you say, be disruptive. This is this is a, a well-observed group d- dynamic, and and uh, at my heart, I'm, I'm what's called a terrorism scholar and and a radicalization scholar. I, I'm interested in how and why these people join these types of movements. And uh, one thing we know from from terrorism research is, or or violent political action, is that uh, they are overwhelmingly unsuccessful. There's there's probably one or two cases in history where uh, terrorist groups actually got what they wanted through the use of, of coercion, violence, and so on and so forth. However, they universally believe that they are capable of doing it. And part of it has to do with groupthink. Part of it has to do, uh, I mean, uh, as, as, again, social animals, we, we tend to engage in something called confirmation bias, where we go out and read and consume ideas and, and opinions that resonate with ours. And when you're, you're in a, uh, and, and, and uh, block out countering uh, uh, opinions and ideas that are counter to our own, and when you're part of an anti-vax movement, when you're part of a, a high-risk activism movement, well, you're going to consume messages, and, and essentially you're going to feed off each other to the point where, yeah, these people genuinely believe that the government is going to, to bend to their will. They, they genuinely believe, as misguided as they are, they, they believe they're right. Um, that makes them, well, misguided, but also makes them dangerous. Uh, not necessarily violent dangerous, but, but dangerous in, in, a, in a more nebulous sense. I always enjoy our conversations, uh, Professor. Uh, this is a very troubling time for an awful lot of us, and we, we don't know what the end game is here uh, or what the ramifications are going to be, but it's it's always, I, I think, important for us to have these discussions out in the open and to understand exactly what we're dealing with. Mm-hmm. Stay well. Thank you so much for this, and uh, hopefully we'll talk again soon. My pleasure. Take care of yourself. Take care. Dr. David Hoffman, of course, uh, from the University of uh, New Brunswick, uh, talking about what's been happening there and the mindset of some of the people. Not all of them. Not all of them. There are people here that just, as I mentioned, are just plain ticked off with the way things are going. And I get that. You know, a lot of us feel that way. Most of us feel that way. But, uh, you know, what 
clicks inside somebody to say, no, I'm going to go there and engage in civil disobedience to get what I want. It's just mind-boggling to most of us. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.